Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Um, I'm going to start at my aunt's house this morning. So in my aunt's back room, she's got a sign hanging up above one of the tables. And the sign reads like this. It says, a woman is like a tea bag. Has anyone heard this before? Does anyone know the punchline? It's on the screen now. You're close. You're close. It's good. It's only a joke, obviously. And I don't think there's anything particular about women in this particularly, but there's definitely truth, right? The only way that we can know how strong our characters are is to reflect on what happens to us when we are under pressure. For instance, um, so loyalty. Loyalty is a positive character trait, right? Um, If you want to know how strong your loyalties are and you're a Man City fan, then that, that's, that's quite difficult. It's been quite easy to be a Man City fan over the last few years. They've won, what, four out of the last five Premier Leagues, and they've got a cabinet full of trophies, and the whole city's full of their fans. That's pretty easy. But maybe you're a Chelsea fan, or a, or a, or a Watford fan, or a Coventry fan. In which case, your loyalty to your football team has been tested over the last few seasons, and you're probably finding out just how strong that loyalty is. That's quite a dumb example, but if you sub out your favorite football club for a friend or a relative or a neighbor who's having a difficult time at the moment, then it becomes a much more searching question. Or let's take another positive character trait, courage. You're only going to find out how courageous you are when the going gets tough and doing the right thing will be risky. So I've got a friend who's a French teacher, and when he was straight out of uni as a newly qualified teacher, he found himself in an uncomfortable position at school. It was exam season and time for oral exams uh, to begin. And that's when pupils have to answer questions in French on tape for an examiner and give their presentations. And he found out that it was completely normal at this school that he was working at for the teachers to start mouthing stuff, mouthing the answers to their friends during the exams, even scribbling bits on pieces of paper and holding them up for them, and even pressing, pressing the pause button on the tape sometimes and spending the next minute just kind of coaching them through what they were going to need to say next. And it was worse than that. He was being tacitly encouraged to do the same thing because if he didn't, he'd be letting the side down. You know, everyone's cheating. If you, <laughs> otherwise, you'll either look like a terrible teacher because your results will be worse than everyone else or you'll be letting the whole school down. That was how he was being encouraged to behave. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, he knew that he, he couldn't do that. He couldn't help the, cheat, the kids cheat on the exams. But also, he felt really convicted that he couldn't just sort of sit quiet and quietly not cheat, do his job and keep his head down. Um, so he was really stressed out for quite a long time. Um, And he prayed about it, and he shared it with his small group, which I was in, which is how I know about this. Um, And we prayed for him too, and eventually he decided to bring the issue out into the open during a whole department staff meeting, which was took some cojones, as Ramiro will tell us whether or not the Spanish actually say. Um, But it worked. By the grace of God, 
in that situation, people listened, and the whole school was changed for the better because you didn't have generations of children and teachers all agreeing that it's okay to cheat. The Bible talks about strength of character a lot. It's something that God really cares about, and he is deeply invested in our character development. That is true for every one of us, regardless of our personality type, regardless of how we express ourselves, uh, how old we are, how young we are, how long we've been following Jesus. It's a pretty big part of the message of the whole New Testament that God is going to use our characters to change the world. More than our accomplishments, more than our eloquence, more than our skills or our knowledge, those things might help, but they need to flow from a character that is full of godly virtue, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, courage, prudence, justice, honesty, humility, honor, gratitude, compassion, wisdom, loyalty, and generosity. And it's that last attribute, generosity, that we're going to focus on today because it runs right through the story of the church in Antioch in the book of Acts, uh, like a stick of rock. And when I say generosity, I mean it in a quite a broad sense, so it's, it's not, it's not a, a sermon on giving. This isn't, that's not what this is really about. It's more the opposite of meanness and mean-spiritedness in general. So if you've got two or more children, do they, do they play nicely together? Do they share well? You can imagine, you can imagine a child's face when uh, they don't want to share their toy. That's, that's what I mean by meanness. And generosity is when you've already shared your toy before, before your sibling even asked for it. And it's that generous spirit that perfused the culture of the church in Antioch, both at the level of the individuals, but also at the whole community. And it's my belief that God used that to bring about some of the most important events in the history uh, of how his kingdom spread to the nations. And that he's still using spirit of generosity to bring about change in people and communities today. So let's dive in with a little bit of context on Antioch, um, because we don't know too much about it these days. Um, back in Judea, the religious authorities have been spending several years tightening the screw on the followers of Jesus. So the pattern is a familiar one. Month by month, year by year, normal people, the, the butchers and the bakers and the tinkers and the tailors of Jerusalem, the Christians there, have been coming to the conclusion that they are not welcome. So every little by little, people start leaving because that's what they've got to do to live in peace. Um, and when they go someplace else, that generally meant going north uh, to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, or to Syria. And the biggest magnet in the region was the bustling city of Antioch in Syria. It's actually in modern-day Turkey, but that, that, that's controversial. Antioch at the time was the largest and most important city in this part of the Roman Empire, the third most important city in the whole Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. And given its location, it was massively multicultural. So bear with me a sec. It was a Greek city originally, Greek colonial city, so it still had a Greek majority population. But it was a Roman colony, so a lot of Latin presence. It was in Syria, so a lot of... Uh, Aramaic and Syrians there, uh, ethnically. There was a large Jewish population. There were lots of people from North Africa. And it was the gateway to the lands of the east in particular and the north. There were people from modern-day Iraq and Iran and India and Armenia 
And apparently, it was one of the few places in the Roman Empire you had a chance of seeing a Chinese person, even, because it was on the way. So, like, <laughs> it was literally, it's on the way. Um, so you had a chance. You might have even seen a British person. Who knows? Historians estimate a population of around 500,000. So it's a serious, serious city. Now, just quickly, can you think of anywhere today where you can find all of the nation's languages and ethnicities of the world gathered? Somewhere with a population of about 500,000? Somewhere that's the third most important city in the land? I think we'd probably find ourselves feeling quite at home in Antioch. But what about those ordinary early believers who were migrating there, forced out of Judea and wanting to live their lives in peace? There would have been a really obvious temptation, I think, to kind of keep your head down, given what's happened to you, uh, and keep yourself to yourself. They, they had found, as followers of Jesus, they'd found freedom, life, and joy in Jesus Christ, but I think life's easier if you keep your private beliefs private, right? That's obviously not what happened in Antioch. Let's start reading from Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It begins. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, which did happen during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, what we're going to do for the next 10-15 minutes is work our way backwards through this story and stop and admire three examples of everyday generosity. And I didn't do this on purpose, but they all begin with M. So first, let's admire the reaction of the Christians to financial uncertainty. We meet the prophet Agabus. Now, if you were uh, downstairs in Discoverers with the older children a couple of weeks ago, you'd have actually met Agabus. And it turns out he looks a lot like our own Andy Kenyon. <laughs> Funny that. Agabus gets a word from God that hard times are coming. But what is the instinct of the Christians in Antioch when they hear this forecast? Do they sign up to the money-saving expert mailing list? Do they buy this book and use, the, <laughs> and use their knowledge to get ahead? I actually saw that on a friend's bookshelf the other day. No, they, they ask themselves, okay, who's really going to struggle in this famine? And the answer comes back when they ask that question, that it's the people they've left behind in Jerusalem who are really up against it. 
presumably because of that same persecution that led them to leave in the first place. And the brothers and sisters they know and love and trust will starve if there is a famine. So they set up a fund and give cheerfully into it. And maybe it's his friends in Antioch that Paul has in the back of his mind when he writes some years later to the church in Philippi, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. They were generous. And there are obvious parallels for us today because we don't necessarily need Agabus to forecast financial difficulty. The spiraling gas prices of 2021 and the soaring price of housing over the last 30 years have made the current cost of living crisis an inevitability that we definitely knew was coming, and it's by no means finished yet. Um, so thinking about generosity in the face of famine is something that's really quite current. And as a church, I think we actually do pretty well on this front because we are, we are open-handed with our resources. It's something that the leadership team is proactive about and takes really seriously. We, are look, we look for opportunities to partner and support churches and ministries, uh, particularly ministries to the poor. We do that through Give Bigs, through a partnership with the Oasis Center in Gorton and churches in Ukraine and Uganda and other places. And there's a crisis fund that we've talked about quite a bit over the last few weeks. So I think the challenge here is, is definitely uh, for us as a church to continue, but also for us as individuals. How have we reacted emotionally to news of financial trouble over the last few years? If you've got a mortgage and it's just gone up, how did you react to that? Did, did your giving go down by the same amount to compensate? Perhaps more pointedly, if you personally have not found it a struggle to heat your house, stock your fridge, or fill your car over the last year or so, then I think as far as the Bible is concerned, that makes you one of the rich people. Uh, how does that change how you understand Jesus' teaching on money? Let's, let's move on to the next section, which is actually moving backwards uh, through the story one step and admire a different kind of generosity, and that's on the part of Barnabas. Because really, Barnabas is, is, if there is a hero of this story, it's Barnabas. It's a human instinct to be fearful of anything that we don't understand. And the church in Jerusalem had a unique and distinctively Jewish theological framework for understanding who Jesus was and what he had come to do. So put briefly, to, the gent to them, Gentiles following Jesus, just, it just didn't make much sense yet. And it would have made them pretty nervous, I think, as a result. You know, this week, sales of the NFL kit for the Kansas City Chiefs have gone up by 400%. There are a lot of new Chiefs fans in the world because Taylor Swift has just started dating that guy, one of the players. Now, how do you think the diehard fans feel about this? Do you think they're, do you think they're pleased? Maybe. But also, like, they're obviously going to be pretty skeptical about this five-fold increase in their apparent fan base. How serious can these new fans really be? There'll be a bit of nervousness, I think, uh, at the moment. And I think that's a little bit how the, the church in Jerusalem would have felt at the time. There'd have, been a, there'd have been an emotional backdrop of fear and confusion and uncertainty. There's news from far away. Uh, and I think there's a real risk of factions developing in the church already because uh, they just don't understand. 
So Barnabas is sent to kind of fact find, I think, and figure out what's going on here. And Barnabas was just the right man for the job. He was a good man, we're told. and His generous-hearted nature is what made it possible for him, even though he didn't understand either what was going on, to acknowledge that God is at work and set about doing what he could to encourage, strengthen, and build that new church in Antioch and encourage and strengthen the church back in Jerusalem by reassuring them that God is doing something really new and exciting here. And it's at this point that Barnabas remembers an old, old prophecy. When we think about it, seven or eight years have passed since the conversion of Saul at this point. Uh, And there was a prophecy at that time that Saul would become the apostle to the Gentiles. You know, it's such a long time ago that I reckon probably lots of people had just forgotten about this. Saul had gone back to Tarsus, his hometown, and we have no idea what he was doing in that time. He certainly wasn't anybody kind of prominent. But Barnabas remembers, and Barnabas thinks, okay, this isn't my moment. This is Saul's moment. This is a sign that we need to call Saul, (laughs) as it were. And nowadays, after he did that, because of that decision that Barnabas made, wherever you go in the world, you're going to find churches that are dedicated to St. Paul with fine cathedrals everywhere put up in his honor and his memory. And I've looked, there are hardly any cathedrals dedicated to St. Barnabas. There's one in Nottingham uh, and one in his hometown of uh, his home country of Cyprus. But Barnabas, he won't care about being remembered or celebrated at all. He wanted to share and grow this ministry. He'll be delighted that billions of people now have learned for themselves how good God is, and he'll be grateful to have played his part in that story. I was thinking about what we can learn from Barnabas and Saul in this story, and I thought, has anyone seen Keeping Mum, the film? Show of hands? Okay, minority. Okay, more people need to watch it. It's a great film. Uh, One of the side plots in this film is about Mrs. Parker. She's the little lady on the right here talking to Maggie Smith. Now, Mrs. Parker follows the vicar, Rowan Atkinson, who's playing it straight. This isn't Mr. Bean. This is like serious actor Rowan Atkinson. Uh, Mrs. Parker follows the vicar relentlessly around throughout the film. She is desperate to give him an earful about the internal politics of the church flower arranging committee which she is in charge of. And it it turns out, we find out near the end of the film, she is paranoid about Cynthia Brown. She thinks that Cynthia is organizing a coup and planning to topple her from the top of the church flower arranging pecking order. She is obviously a figure figure of fun and ridicule in this film. It's supposed to be ridiculous, but when my dad, who was himself a rural parish vicar, watched it, He didn't find it that funny. (laughs) He thought it was all a little bit close to the bone because that's absolutely what people are like. If you're following Jesus, you have an inner Barnabas. You have a ministry or ministries. Maybe you've got a formally recognized role here in the church or somewhere else, uh, such as chair of the flower arranging committee. Or maybe it's an informal role or something that you're in the process of figuring out or rediscovering. But 
but you have an inner Barnabas and a, and a ministry. But I promise you, we've all got an inner Mrs. Parker as well. I've got one too. There is a part of each of us that is proud and that clings to status and is paranoid and scared whenever we perceive a threat to that status. It is a part of us that is ridiculous and embarrassing, and if you're self-conscious at all, you'll be trying to hide it all the time. So let's, let's look to Barnabas and take our lead from him. Let's be generous and open-hearted in our ministry. Let's be individuals in a church that don't care about recognition, that don't care about status. Let's be encouragers. And let's ask God to help us spot signs of our inner Mrs. Parker so that we can repent of her and put her to death with a frying pan. One more thing on this point. Later on in chapter 13, a little bit later in the story of Antioch, we learn that Barnabas has inspired the whole church and they have picked up his spirit of generous ministry culture because uh, there's a little anecdote. The the leaders are all together and it's a diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural group of leaders and they hear from God that it's time to send Barnabas and Paul away on a mission to the nations. That's a big chunk of their leadership team. These are people who've spent an entire year teaching, training, and investing uh, in the church in Antioch. And God says, you need to send them out. And what do the church do? They don't object. They don't try and cling on to their key leaders. They listen. They send them off gladly. They cover them in prayer. And I think this kind of thing could get highly relevant for us as a congregation. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, you'll have heard Andy Brownlee saying that we plan to stay in this building, which, if you look around you, you'll notice that there's not that much space in. So if we do outgrow it numerically, then the plan is we'll take that as a prompt from God to plant a new site somewhere else. And maybe, like me, you have mixed feelings about a prospect like that, because on the one hand, it's great because it's spread of the kingdom, more opportunities uh, to spread and to share the good news in a hyper-local way. But on the other hand, like it, it will be painful. It'll involve losing leaders. It'll involve losing friends. It won't be straightforward. So we're going to need to think about the church in Antioch quite seriously if it comes to that. So let's pray that it does happen. And let's come back to Antioch and revisit Barnabas' spirit of generosity and encouragement when it does. Okay, we're going to look at one more example of generosity in action in Antioch, and we need to go back to the start and admire the Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is in modern-day Libya, so it's off the map, um, so far away from Antioch. These guys are the first people to consistently share the good news about Jesus with non-Jews. And what I love about them and this story is, is how haphazard it all is. There isn't a grand plan, there's no leader, there's no strategy. The events take place over several years. It's slow, it's gradual, it's every day. And we don't know who any of these people are. None of them have names. But what we do get a sense of is they were ordinary people living ordinary lives that bring them into contact with uh, non-believers, and non-Jews in particular. And they'd have been like Barnabas and like the Jews in Jerusalem. They wouldn't have had any sense of a mission to the Gentiles. They wouldn't have even understood what that meant at the time. All they were doing was generously and openly sharing their lives with the people around them in a deep and authentic way. And that's why I've called this meaning generosity. 
Because I think what I do, and probably in a stereotypically English way, I'm not alone here, we keep people slightly at arm's length from any sense of the, the core of us, our belief and our meaning and our purpose. It's safer that way. It's easier. It keeps relationships kind of free-flowing. But it's also really lightweight, and it means we can go through life just skating over the surface instead of really properly engaging with the people around us. But when you think about what Jesus has given me, us, it's so good. It's so life-giving. It's so true. There's comfort in it. There's security. There's power in it. It's all to be found in Jesus. And we live in a world where that's really desperately needed. You can look at any segment of society and go, wow, there is a lot of need for that sense of relationship with God, of security, of knowledge about who we are, who we're meant to be, and hope of eternity. That would just transform every aspect of our society. We're in a society where daily life, as we know it, is getting replaced by uh, Silicon Valley behemoths who turn our human instincts for kind of stimulation and connection and turn them into clicks and profit instead. And it means that pubs and clubs and places like that are shutting in their droves because now people are getting their sim stimulation from artificial means instead. Jesus offers something vital and necessary for Manchester and Stockport, so not to share it with the people that I come across in my day-to-day -day life. That's mean-spirited. That's the opposite of generous. Here's how Paul puts it in his letter to the Philippians, paraphrased here in the message. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, of course I have, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, I think I do, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends, not shallow. Don't push your way to the front, don't sweet-talk your way to the top, put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And Paul goes on to explain why. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what's at the heart of it all. God is a generous God. Every good and perfect gift comes from heaven. He's looked with favor on us. He's done great things. He's filled the hungry with good things. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's given us his spirit, the spirit that was so powerfully at work in the life of Barnabas and the life of the church in Antioch and made them generous. Yesterday, Becky gave me unexpectedly a brilliant picture of God's generosity. She had been baking cupcakes and she gave one to Reuben, which I thought was a unwise <laughs> and he, he he just started pulling it to bits and smushing it everywhere all around the kitchen and we had to take it off him and I had to go into the cupboard and get the dustpan and brush and I was like Becky what on earth possessed you to give the baby a cupcake when he wasn't even hungry and she said I, I made them they're good I just wanted to give him good things. 
And I think that's what God's like. He's so keen to give us good things that he gives us things that we're too hopeless and incompetent to even use properly. But they're still good, and they're still from God, and he will just keep on giving them to us. The cupcakes are really good, by the way. So, so why should we be generous? Because God was generous first. How can we grow in everyday generosity? By finding everyday ways to meditate on who God is and what he's given to us first. And what's a good place to start? Well, Jamie's going to come up and lead us in worship. And that is a chance to sing some songs that remind us of who God is and what he's done for us. I'm going to pray, and soon we're going to share the Lord's Supper. And really, what is the Lord's Supper about if it's not an everyday ritual designed to help us reflect on God's generosity and express our gratitude in return?